0: Welcome to Demystifying Instructional Design, a podcast where I interview various instructional designers to figure out what it is instructional designers do. I'm Rebecca Hoag, your podcast host. Can you introduce yourself?
1: Hi, I'm Matt Crossland. I'm an instructional designer too at Orbis Education, where we create hybrid courses for health degree programs like nursing and medical lab sciences, partnering with universities to create courses that are offered to their students. And also, I am a part-time faculty at the University of Texas at Rio Grande Valley, where I teach in their master's and doctoral program in instructional design as well. So I teach about two courses per semester, depending on the semester, various topics in that. And I currently live in the Dallas, Texas metroplex area. I have a son who is about turn 11 and start middle school, and that is causing me all kinds of stress. And so that's kind of <laughs> my life in a nutshell.
0: Can you describe what you do as an instructional designer?
1: You know, it, it ends up being a lot more counseling. I think that a lot of people realize you talk with professors and faculty who are often new to online learning, and you convince them that, yes, you can do it and it will work out great for you. Some of them are often not used to teaching online, so they're very frightened of it. Uh, sometimes I Sometimes get surprised at how much you know, interactions that I have help, helping them to feel okay about this, this new world that they're about to embark on and that it'll be okay and I'll be there to help them. So it's a lot of that. It's a lot of talking through with them what they want to do with their online courses and kind of pulling out the, the really good ideas and helping them to focus on the things that will be more beneficial to the students and pulling them away from the things that won't be very helpful for them or their students, and then talking through with them the options that they have to create a good online course, and then of course helping them to actually design and create that course once we get to that phase. And that's kind of what I basically do on the instructional design side in a nutshell.
0: And so, how did you get into that?
1: I started off in education. I started off as eighth grade science teacher. And learning about that, I learned about educational technology, started exploring the educational technology side of education a bit more, mixing that with my eighth grade courses. And then I discovered through that, really a degree, what I thought was in educational technology was really more in instructional design. And I enjoyed that factor of it a lot more. And that was uh, when I got my master's degree through the University of Texas at Brownsville, which is now the University of Texas at Rio Grande Valley. And that's that's kind of where I discovered this whole world of instructional design, pursuing kind of more of the technology side and realizing that it was more important to face to, to focus on the design side than the technology side.
0: What are the typical tasks in your day?
1: For me, it's usually get up, answer any email that, that I need to for that day. I start having Zoom meetings since my job is remote. I start having Zoom meetings with professors, with other instructional designers at my company that are working with me on the program. We'll have team meetings to, to plan for the program. We'll have individual meetings with the subject matter experts or the professors to talk through their course, and then also work on whatever aspect of the course that I'm currently working on. If. At the beginning of the course build, of uh, course, design process, we're working on module outcomes and objectives and those kind of things. Then we start working on the content and the activities that, stu- that the students will be doing. And so, you know, whatever is coming from the instructor, I'll usually look through that and give them a lot of feedback on that some thoughts and some ideas and some questions for them. And then there's always a lot of paperwork <laughs> involved in instructional design, make sure that I have all that done and try to do some readings on research or blog posts with current event type things. What's going on now in the world of education, try to keep up with that as much as I can as well. And then after the day job kind of shuts down and now I've had time to get my son from school or talk with him to see how things are going. Then during the semester, then I usually have to open up the email from my course and start interacting, answering questions from the students from the courses that I teach. That's also a lot of feedback as well. So they're, they're asking me a lot of questions. So I'm giving them a lot of feedback on the different projects we're working on because the, the program I teach in is mostly all project based, uh, authentic learning assessment. I, I haven't given a test in 10 years, I don't think. <laughs> so it's all just What's project. That? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's my typical day.
0: You mentioned that you work with other instructional designers. Who, mm-hmm. who else do you work with?
1: Uh, the company I work with there, I'm on one of three instructional design teams. And there's usually about six to eight instructional designers on each team. We have a good 20 to 30 instructional designers at our company. it either be my team, will be, we use this tool called River. It's basically just a copycat of Slack. But uh, so we'll use River, interact a lot, uh, back and forth asking questions. Uh, you know, hey, anybody have any ideas for this? Or, hey, can someone help me on that? We have a very collaborative environment. And then we have the larger group where there's all three of the instructional design teams, if we have bigger questions about, especially things with, to deal with accessibility and things like that, copyright, we want to make sure we get those things right. So we'll ask kind of bigger questions of the bigger team. So those are the people that I'm usually interacting with on my team. But there's, I work for a company, there's a department for everything. A lot of instructional designers, especially I was an instructional designer before, as you know, at the University of Texas at Arlington for about 15 years, either instructional designer or on the research side as well. A lot of times instructional designers are kind of the jacks of all trades. They have to do all the, uh, all the parts. If there's a video, they got to make it, you know, if there's a graphic, they got to create those it. kind of things working for a company is kind of different as we have departments for all that. We have a graphics department. We have a video department. We have a virtual reality department. We have, there's, there's all these cool departments that you can kind of just interact with as well to get them to create the different components of your course. So which is kind of nice because I just, I focused mainly on the, the theory and pedagogy side of things.
0: So, so you can you can in essence say, oh, hey, this would be really good activity done in virtual scenario, virtual reality scenario mm-hmm. or whatever, and then pass that off to the VR team to build you something.
1: Yeah. We have created some 3D animations that are pretty cool that I've been able to talk the instructors into. So that's pretty cool.
0: And so what is your niche? Because you mentioned you have a bunch of instructional designers on your team, sort of what 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 differentiates
1: you? We're all assigned to work with a specific school or a specific college or university. And that's, that's kind of who I work with. My, I'm specifically working with a medical lab sciences degree at a specific school. Most of our company works with nursing or healthcare in, in some way, but it's mostly nursing. But I'm, I'm working on medical lab sciences uh, program. That's kind of what differentiates me from <laughs> other instructional designers.
0: <laughs> what kind of project do you find excites you?
1: You know anything that is more open-ended or uh, project-based or authentic something that's not just you know read the book, watch the video take the test there's a lot of that and, and that can be done well in online courses but for me if we get something that is not necessarily a singular pathway students can be able to choose different options choose something that they want to, customize their personal interests or their personal needs for whatever the degree is. Something that's maybe has less defined endpoints, something that's sometimes are called branching scenarios or choose your own adventure kind of things, those kind of or gamification, I guess some people call that. There's lots of names it goes under, but anything where you really have to think through how to create this scenario or event or something that students then kind of feel their way through and kind of think through things a bit more in depth, rather than just memorizing answers. That's kind of an open-ended answer as well.
0: <laughs> I think about that. And I think about how much more difficult that is to think through, mm-hmm. it's how much more difficult it is to design, which is <laughs> part of the fun of it. What are the biggest challenges you face as an instructional designer?
1: Oh, it's it's always the deadlines. (laughs) These courses have to go live on a certain date. Usually the school has to put them in a a course calendar and enroll students and all that kind of stuff. So that, that just puts those deadlines on you and working with faculty that are very busy, have a lot on their plate. And so that's always the challenge to keep them moving forward without like you don't want you, you don't want to be the mean person that's coming in and saying get this done or else it always works better to encourage and and to support rather than to scare so um, <laughs> that's always the, the tactic that I'm trying to lean towards is, is is how do I encourage them to move forward without making them feel like I'm just breathing down their necks and just trying to micromanage them as well so mm-hmm. But you, you kind of have to strike a balance there because you don't want them to think that they can just put things off to whenever. There has to be some kind of urgency to get it done or else you're going to have a bunch of students without a class. <laughs> so,
0: yeah, <laughs> the deadline doesn't go away. Yeah. <laughs> what skills do you find most useful?
1: Really the ability to think through sometimes kind of a half-formed or ill-structured idea and then take that to an actual activity that students can do. Faculty and staff will have these often ideas of what they want students to do, but then how to get that to an online activity that students can then complete, especially when we do online labs and things like that. That takes a lot of problem-solving skills to think through that. But it has to be not just on the design side, it also does have to be on the technical side as well. You have to be able to think through different technology solutions Because even though you think about the pedagogy first, you still have to have that technology piece that actually works and doesn't like drive students just up the wall, trying to figure out how to use it. Or that even even worse, in our world, there's these proctoring solutions and turn it in and things like that, that offer very easy solutions for giving tests. But then there's all these problems that they've caused with students, not just the stress, but the bias and the discrimination in those tools. So you have to think through the technology as well. Uh, in a way that creates this online lesson without driving the, the students like I said up the wall to where they, they, they can't figure it out, so the ability to quickly figure out technology things on your own you know, or at least be able to Google it and figure out how the things work as well, so you 'll be able to see it from the student perspective, very helpful skills
0: And so what do you wish you knew or learned sooner? <laughs>
1: All of it? No. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of a long process of trial and error for me to get, you know, get to instructional design. But the things that I wish I, I had learned earlier are, are things like the community of inquiry framework, humanizing your instruction, kind of the pedagogy of care kind of stuff. That was stuff that kind of came along. I've been an instructional designer for five or six years really before I kind of started stumbling on those things. And some of it was stuff that I was already just kind of doing because I was trying to be a good, good instructional designer, but learning that there's this whole world out there of people who have researched that and looked into it and come up with ways to do uh, education a little bit differently, whether it's on grading or, you know, inquiry framework or people who've who've looked to put a, a bit more human-centered approach to education rather than just kind of the dehumanizing approach of grading and tests and just kind of numbers and numbers and numbers and quant- quantitatively figure everything out in education just wish I had discovered that earlier that there's this other side of things
0: what advice would you give to new instructional designers
1: oh that's a good question i would say that probably one of the more important things you can do is forming your your professional network of of people that you can go to for help for answers for feedback hopefully you'll have some of that where you're working but Forming that bigger community, tapping into that bigger community of people can be very, very helpful, especially with uncertain times. You know, When you need to reach out for something you really need help with, maybe you've lost a job or maybe things are a bit shaky at your current position and need some help and advice, you can reach out to people in that network and you're not just this random person that popped up out of nowhere. You know, there's someone that people know and people will be willing to, to help. And, you know, that's how I got my current job, which is reaching out on Twitter and saying. You know, hey, my university is about to shut down my whole research lab and I need a job. And, the, and that tweet somehow you know, got tweeted around and it got in front of my current company and they reached out and said, hey, we've got a position for you. And if you want to apply for it, and I applied for it and they liked me and they hired me. So uh, that professional network has is, is often been a lifesaver for me in this field, especially. And it doesn't have to be these big things like saving your job or whatever, but it can be little things as well. There's a lot of, a lot of times I... I don't, I don't get a whole lot of time these days to, to to really engage with Twitter like I used to, but so pull it up occasionally during the day and look at the different things that are floating by in the in the, the feed. And I was like, oh, that's a cool idea. I need to look into that. And so you also get a lot of ideas as well. Just kind of as even if you just kind of glance at it every once in a while, people, as long as you're following people that like to share, <laughs> um, you'll get these good ideas will float by. It'll help you.
0: It's a good point about the network because it's one of those things that if you're looking for work, it's too late.
1: Right. You kind of
0: <laughs> yeah. needed to have set that network up. Well, you it takes months to set up a decent network, right? Yeah. And so trying to do it, trying to make it instantaneous, you know, when you never know when you're gonna need it, right? Yeah. So the last question I have for you is what is your prediction for the future of instructional design?
1: Okay, so I actually did some thinking on that one. <laughs> and, you know, I came up with uh, a few things i mean to for people to think about on that issue, but it, it may not be along the lines of what people were initially <laughs> thinking of, but I'll go ahead and share what uh, kind of came to mind when i when when, when people when people asked that question. and the first thing in the immediate here and now, what's happening uh, in the next few years, I think you're just seeing that a lot of universities are not supporting or not funding and hiring in the academic support realm as much. So you're seeing instructional design jobs at academia, people are losing their jobs, the support departments are kind of drying up and disappearing, or they're just not creating new positions, even though the work is increasing. But on the flip side, what you're seeing is that the companies like I work for are coming in and hiring all these people that aren't getting jobs or who are losing their jobs. So you're starting to see a shift a little bit towards more towards the corporate end of things. And they're, they're either companies like mine that come in and work with universities and create programs and degrees, or they're just companies that just have training and they hire instructional designers to do their internal training as well. But so I think that's where you're starting to see a lot of the good instructional design work shifting is towards those entities. Some people uh, call them uh, online program management companies or OPM companies. And then there's also, there's a lot of pushback to that. A lot of people uh, in academia are saying that the OPMs are coming to take your people, to take your money, to take your jobs and stuff. And in general, that's actually not true. They're not taking anything. It's they're picking up what academia is throwing away. A lot of times they're hiring people that academia is firing. They are trying to create programs. And, and courses where none exist right now and universities and colleges are passing up the opportunities. In general, so for, you know, a few obvious examples, in general, the OPMs are not trying to compete with existing programs. They're, it's just not good business sense. It's hard to crack into those markets. They're trying to find the places where there's a need for students and for training and then create programs there. And then they're even the, the the good OPMs are actually paying the people that they work with. They're, they're paying the faculty stipends to come in and, and create courses. Unlike the universities, who'll just keep piling on more and more courses and not <laughs> increase the pay. So I think that's what you're going to start. That's what you're, you're seeing already, and it's going to keep going. One thing I say that you don't want to, to look at, and I hear a lot of people say this, so I'm not picking on anyone in particular, but a lot of people will say that for the fall, the final future of education, follow the research and grant money. That's where education is going. And for the most part, I say that's probably not true. Never really has been. Uh, research and grant dollars are often controlled by gatekeepers and people with power. And for, for the most part, if you want to know who's in control, it's good to say, follow the money. But if you're wanting to see what's actually happening, going to happen in future education, I wouldn't necessarily follow the research and grant money, the Gates Foundations, people like that. They're they're big into virtual reality and artificial intelligence and learning analytics and all these things. And yeah, there's some interesting things happening in those fields. You know, I'm not saying they're necessarily bad fields, but it's so, so seldom that you actually see those things actually in real classes on the ground. It's just... They're expensive, they take forever to develop, and it's just not practical. You know, three to 4,000 colleges or universities here in the United States alone with tens or hundreds of thousands of courses that are out there. And you just can't scale things that cost huge dollars to all those courses. You're just gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna continue to see the the research and grant money kind of funding kind of fringe things that people with money will be able to to afford. So I, I would just look at, just just look at the things that people who are actually on the ground are are interested in or fighting for or against. One of the things we see people fighting against a lot are the proctoring services, right? I think that's another thing you're going to see in the future is just a continued battle between the proctoring and plagiarism detection services and those and, and teachers and instructors because, for the most part, students don't like those services at best, and at worst, they're being abused by those services, So, but they're being pushed more and more by, again, the people with the money, the gatekeepers, the people at the top who have it, and even the faculty and staff are, for the most part, I see that the most of them are skeptical of those tools. Even if, even if they want someone watching their students, they're skeptical of how well the tools want to work out. So I, I foresee that continuing to be a a battle that may even get a little bit uglier and a little bit um, more contentious in the future as well, but it's probably going to have more of an effect on education than what some of the research (laughs) and (laughs) grant money is researching. So that's my two cents. I could be totally wrong.
0: Thank you very much. You've been listening to Demystifying Instructional Design, a podcast where I interview instructional designers about what they do. For show notes, go to demystifyinginstructionaldesign.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. Thanks.